Why is it we humans get romanced by complexity when the answers can be found at a simple and practical level? This is the Simply Practically Human podcast, where the human manager, Mark Labasque, features experts who have a track record in humanizing workplaces, using simplicity and practicality as their go-to approach. It's all about getting back to what it is to be human and watch workplaces thrive rather than just survive. Hey, Mark Labusk here for the Simply Practically Human podcast. Interestingly, today's guest is, I want to share a quick story. I, I met Tim Horan last year in a, in, a, in a forum called Drinking Dialogues. It's hosted by Dr. Richard Clayton and Oscar Venhouse. And um, I was immediately sort of drawn to what I say is Tim's lack of bullshit and just putting things out there saying what he thought, but doing it in a really a really gentle and constructive way. And as I continued to get the opportunities to be in the breakout rooms with him, I was just becoming more and more curious about about what made him tick. So we'd been in touch and had a few conversations about some different things and at times, you know, getting to some pretty deep places. And I'm delighted that today was able to, to have Tim on as a guest on this podcast. And we sort of went to a whole lot of different places today. Um, as Tim mentions in the episode, near the end, he felt like he was on a roller coaster ride that was over before it had begun. It just seemed to go so very, very quickly. And what we covered off in today without giving too much away is this concept of the lone wolf in an organisation and the the benefits you can get from embracing the lone wolf in the organisation and how that can help organisations to get the results they want to get. Whether collaboration was really compliance but just dressed up in some different clothing. So do we truly understand what collaboration is and what's the place for what real collaboration is in in organisations? The ability for us to step into discomfort and particularly today, Tim, will talk about and and offer some really, really simple and practical tips for managers on embracing everything from playing nice in the sandpit to the lone wolf in your team can be very, very uncomfortable for you. So he'll share some some tips on how, as a manager, you can do that. And he'll also share some of his thoughts around why curiosity is something that we should embrace more and perhaps more than something that we are really looking for in organisations at the moment is, you know, this bravery and courage. So where does curiosity sit along the line? Tim is someone who's prepared to share some really, really deep things about himself in order for us to get context of why he is like he is as a self-confessed lone wolf and his experience that he's had with having that. Some of what he'll share today may make you feel uncomfortable, but uh, I would really encourage you to listen to what Tim has to say and get beneath some of the words and some of the experiences to understand why it's important that people can be the way that they are. So sit back, have a listen, take some notes, and uh, we'll catch you at the end. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Tim Horan, who's the Chief Editor at Digivisor. Tim, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me on your show, Mark. Hey, yeah, mate, we met some time ago. I know we chatted not long back about getting this episode off off the ground, and it's going to be fascinating today to to sort of dig into things around feeling discomfort, maybe a bit of the myth of collaboration and, and how being a lone wolf can be a, a good thing in organisations and for, for human beings. But before we get there, I always check in with people, if you can recall, 
where we first connected? Excellent question. So I believe it was at a virtual gathering known as Drinking Dialogues. Is that right? I think so. And so this is um, a group of mad scientists out of Hong Kong. They're not really mad scientists. They're very smart people, have a virtual... um, It's a get-together, people who don't even necessarily know each other, but each week uh, they dissect a topic that is relevant to people working today in 2021 and it's just really a way of um, really exploring topics and using like the collective brain power of people from all over the world to um, answer the hard questions about challenges facing us in business today. Yeah, love it. Um, Hello Richard and Oscar by the way. I think it's been an incredible platform that they've set up to allow like you said people from all around the world and I, and I like what they say, like-spirited, not necessarily like-minded, so we can we can debate and we can learn from each other. But I, I recall the first time you came on there and I think I might have ended up in a breakout room with you or I think you might have been given an opportunity to talk in between the breakout rooms and I was just like, this guy just, he just doesn't speak any bullshit. He just puts it out there. And, and then I was drawn to go, right, I, I want to know more about you and then... We had a chat earlier this year about getting you on on here and we're sort of going to jump around a bit today, but I I love the way that you think you've sort of thrown a few topics up, one being that there is a place where we're supposed to in the workplace play nice and collaborate and work in teams. There's a place for what you've described as the lone wolves in organisations to help them move forward. We'll also play around a bit with perhaps why collaboration is misunderstood and there's another C word that organisations are using in the place of collaboration. And then get into this topic of, you know, why it's important for managers to step into, into their discomfort. So let's sort of wind the clock back, though, for you. I'm interested uh, and have read a lot of your stuff, including some of the adventures you put yourself through over time. But let's wind the clock back to history and, and, and younger, Tim. What, what, did, what did he do? Where did he grow up and what's influenced you to be like you are today? Oh, wow. So people rarely ask me about my background. And this does involve stepping into my discomfort because when I think about my childhood, I don't really think of it as a time in my life that was like idyllic. It was quite stressful, actually. I I grew up in Adelaide in South Australia, even though I was born in New South Wales. My parents moved to South Australia when I was four, four years old, I think. Uh, My father, to put it bluntly, was a very A-type personality, a self-made person. Uh, He carried a lot of anger around with him because of his upbringing and um, his family, unfortunately, (laughs) including me, copped a lot of it. So that was really a formative experience for me, like sort of being exposed to my father's anger, which was negative but as an older person now uh, with a family of my own and through the perspective of years I can see that he actually achieved a lot he really was a self-made person Uh, nothing was ever handed to him like he wasn't born into privilege he wasn't born into money and he I suppose in a way which will uh, lead into this lone wolf discussion he really was the ultimate lone wolf, but I've sort of made peace with this idea of the lone wolf because 
it doesn't necessarily have to be negative. Anyway, so that's a bit of a a diversion. No, that that's cool. Childhood experiences really shaped my experience of the world and observing how, you know, people can get things done through the way they interact with others or or setting the lead. I like it. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. The lone wolf and let's just talk a bit about that now. I'll get some thoughts from you. So what to you is the lone wolf? What what is that? Yeah, well, the lone wolf, as most of us understand it, I'm talking about a person now. Obviously, you know, the illustration is from nature, yep. lone wolves in nature. But in an organisation, a lone wolf is generally regarded as someone who doesn't necessarily follow the rules. They operate independently. They get things done but they're often viewed as people who are not playing nice with others or they're treading on the toes of others and they chase results with little heed to the consequence or how others would feel about it. Now, that's the general view people have of lone wolves. My view of lone wolves, which we'll get into later, is actually a bit different. It's more nuanced than that. But generally when someone says, oh, Tim is a lone wolf or Mark is a lone wolf, generally it's pejorative. So they're sort of casting shade on you. But, like, I I, I want to reclaim, I want to make lone wolves great again after this discussion. (laughs) (laughs) So so just just why is it, do you think, that the descriptors that people use about the traditional, about the lone wolf, it's like it's the negative side of it, what, why are people doing that? What, what, what do you think is in it for them to be able to put someone else in more of a negative light because of the way they operate than maybe seeing the positive, which you'll talk about a bit later on? Yeah, excellent question, Mark. This really is a can of worms. I mean, one of the reasons is lone wolves are actually quite effective in achieving things. And so if they're kicking goals or they're getting excuse my French, if they're getting shit done, it sort of puts people in a position where they feel they have to compete with them. So it's better to criticise them for their lone wolfishness rather than their achievements. Yeah, I mean, that's just one side of it. There, there is another side of it. I mean, on a good day, I would say society is evolving for the better because there's certain traits and attitudes that were just accepted in the past that we don't tolerate now. Rightly so. But we've sort of thrown the lone wolf out with the bathwater, thrown the baby out with the bathwater. So we'll go into this, but when I describe someone as a lone wolf, I'm not describing someone as offensive or a chauvinist or anything like that. I'm simply drilling down into the capabilities of the person. Yeah, I like that. And, um, yeah, we'll we'll dig into that a bit. So it's interesting when you said that about, the competitive piece of it. So, you know, this competitive nature that comes into the workplace, and I think there's actually a space for competition in, in work when it's done with good intention. I also was talking with a group, working with a group for the last two days, Tim, who we were talking about the ability to let go and allow those below them to do the work where it's done best. And and they kept talking about this idea that we can't let go because we're worried that they won't do as good a job as us. And I'm like, I wonder if you do it because you're worried that they'll do a better job than you. Now, I'm just thinking with what you said about the lone wolf and that competitive piece of it is that 
Is there a concern for people that the lone wolf may well be more effective in delivering results than what what they may be? Is, is there something going on there? I think there is something going on there. And to make this even more complex, people in a leadership capacity, one of the measures of their success, if they have people reporting to them, is to increase the effectiveness of those reporting to them yep. because like, the leader can't do everything. And this is where if a lone wolf is given leadership responsibilities, I've had this experience, it's very difficult. It has been very difficult for me because it's hard for me to let go of things when I know I might be doing a better job at something. Yeah. But if the idea is to increase the collective capability of the organisation, <laughs> it's, very, it's very hard for a lone wolf to surrender to that and see someone maybe stumble or not do it right. I mean, I have a lot of ideas on this as well, how lone wolves can actually be integrated yep. into the organisation. But, yeah, so it's a dual thing. People might resent the lone wolf because they just know they're going to do a better job. But on the other side, how can the lone wolf increase the capability of others Yeah, while maintaining their identity? <laughs> yeah, so... Something was triggering for me when you were talking about where the lone wolf sits and, and I was thinking about leadership positions. So what's your take on the effectiveness that lone wolves could have in a position of authority, as in with a team? Are they, are they better to be integrated into a team, maybe not at the top level or, or, the, or should they be at the top? What, what, what are your thoughts around that? What's the pros and cons there? Well, I'll start with the cons. So if like the lone wolf is at the apex, if they're the CEO, they're probably going to cause some strife because yeah. really to be a successful CEO, <laughs> they kind of have to let go of a lot of their lone wolfishness. But to integrate the lone wolf into the organisation, see, not everyone has to be the CEO. See, a lone wolf is notable because... They're capable. They're getting things done. There's lots of markers of success. Perhaps they're winning lots of clients or they're retaining clients. They're winning new business or they're, they're working out how to do things in new ways. So my view is a lone wolf needs to be integrated in the organisation where they're actually influencing other people that are yeah. actually getting the work done. I'm just going all over the place right now, but something else that's come to mind for me, how self-aware alone wolves of their lone wolfishness <laughs> <laughs> well okay i self-identify as a lone wolf and i am very much aware of my lone wolfishness but i think that's also a reflection of my age mm. so if i was a much younger lone wolf it'd probably all be instinct but one thing is common whether a lone wolf is conscious of this or not one thing is common, they feel in their bones like a sense of individual identity and they really bristle when they're, they perceive they're being forced to actually surrender their identity into a sort of amorphous blob-like collective. Like to a lone wolf, that feels like death. Yeah, and, and it's bringing me to those two words that are playing nice. So the lone wolf, and I can identify as well with that it's like 
we need to rein you in a little bit to come into the group and just play nicer in the sandpit, Mark or Tim, <laughs> because nice things happen in the sandpit. And yes. we, we sort of like the work you do, but we don't particularly like the way that you go about doing the work that you do. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but I have been told that. Yes. What happens to the lone wolf when they get told to play nice? And we're not talking about here that they're playing extremely poorly. They're not doing all those things you talked about before, you know, back in the sort of 80s-style managers or whoever they are, doing the misogynistic, the, the cultural slurs, whatever. They're not doing that, but they're just they're out with the edge. They're, they're working in a different way. What happens to the lone wolf when, when they're told to play nice? Well, it depends what stage the lone wolf is at in their career. So a young lone wolf... <laughs> Could be male, could be female. Uh, we're talking about people, just to reiterate. We're not yes. talking about literal wolves. But if they're early on in their career and, you know, they're given a dressing down and they're asked to play nice in the sandpit, you know, they will try, but they will soon discover that due to the structure of the organisation that their effectiveness is then hampered yep. because they're having to comply with certain directives which are not necessarily aligned with being effective. And mm -hmm. so then once they discover that, they'll sort of mentally check out a bit and then they'll start to drift back to their lone wolfishness. Yep. Uh, an older lone wolf, this is a terrible thing to say, but, you know, let's be honest, let's be simply human. This is a simply human Absolutely. podcast is they will probably engage in a form of impression management where, you know, they'll tick boxes to look like they're getting along, but, you know, they'll really discontinue being a lone wolf. And maybe maybe smarter to to play closer to the edges so that they can still practice a bit of that stuff, but the, it maybe doesn't show out as much as it might have when they were younger and they, they drifted a bit further from what we call that edge of authority. Yeah, so, we, you know, there's that expression, wolf in sheep's clothing. So over time, they would have developed their, like, fleece that they yes. can put on. <laughs> they can don at an appropriate time and people not approvingly and go, oh, yeah. Tim has really matured or Mark has really matured, but it's just the wolf wearing yep. the fleece. Yeah, and what does that do? Because, you know, when you have to don the fleece, and I'm sure you've had to do that at times, and I know that I have, and maybe that's why I am where I am today because it either got too warm with the fleece on or, or whatever, or I didn't like the fashion statement. What does it do to the lone wolf when they have to don the fleece every now and again? Well, it comes down to self-awareness. If they're fully conscious of what they're doing, as much as that will upset them, like an experienced lone wolf will just regard it as an that's just a price of yep. of work today. Mm. I don't like it, but I need to play the game. Yeah, it's a necessary evil. I know yeah. that I can go to a certain point, but at times I have to be here and they'll know their audience and and how they how they need to do that. I'm sure there are people listening saying, hey. Tim's talking about me right now, and I'm actually I'm doing that right now, or I was doing that yesterday. I, I get that. So, one of the things that I want to sort of get out of today's episode is is the ability for managers to sit. If, if managers have got lone wolves in their teams, their ability to sit with the discomfort of that lone wolf being able to do that to a certain point, maybe being reined in at times, and then let that go again as well. But then we have this other thing that we've invented in organisations, this 
disgusting word. It's a C word, and it's not the word people might be thinking of. It's collaboration. Wow, what a filthy word. I can't believe you dropped that in a publicly available podcast. Well, I, do, I will <laughs> say at the start of this episode when I do the intro that there may be some explicit language used in this that may offend some people, and collaboration is a word that offends me. And that comes from a personal experience where I was told I wasn't collaborative, and when I asked why, it was because I didn't agree. You don't seem to agree with people a lot. It's like I just thought that was a different perspective, not that I didn't collaborate, but when you're getting performance managed because it's a culture pillar in your business, you sort of start to get a bit pissy with the term, I've got to say. Mm. So... You mentioned something before we started about when collaboration can be useful, and it is useful, except for when it starts to be identified with another C word. Fancy that. Oh, yeah. This is even more offensive, my C word, than your C word. I think it is too. So I'm going to let you say that C word because it's your C word. What is that word, Tim? Uh, That word is compliance. So the experience you were recounting where you were told in a performance review that you don't play nice with others or, you know, you don't agree with them. Well, there should be friction in collaboration. True collaboration is excellent. We should actually pursue true collaboration. But for that to result in innovation or insights or a new direction, there has to be like sand in the gears. There has to be a bit of friction to challenge, you know, existing modes of thought. But we're delving into human psychology now. When people use words like collaboration, it's really a placeholder for another word and that's the other C word, compliance. So collaboration is great, but unfortunately most organisations painting with a broad brush are not set up to engender true collaboration. What they're really pursuing is compliance. Yeah, and when you say they're not set up to truly engender the essence of collaboration, where does the acceptance or or otherwise of the lone wolf come into that? Well, I think one of the best ways to integrate a lone wolf back into an organisation is to have some sort of mechanism in place where it's accepted that the lone wolf is modelling a certain type of behaviour that is actually desirable to the organisation. Because we're not talking about someone being an asshole. We're talking about someone getting results, which positively affects the bottom line. So management need to make peace with the existence of the lone wolf and actually develop a sense of curiosity as to why the lone wolf is successful. So if we have a collaborative atmosphere, like use the lone wolf as a case study. This is a challenge for organisations because, you know, talking about compliance, the the brand name is put on a pedestal and it causes discomfort for those running the organisation to accept that there are people within the organisation. Maybe it's only a handful of people. Not all of them may be lone wolves, but the chances are they are. It's a handful of people that are driving results. So let's examine why they're successful. But it's almost a taboo topic because if we start talking about successful individuals, we're focusing on people and not the abstract brand name because the brand name is like eternal and people can come and go, they can be voted on and off the island to use your expression, but 
it's always the brand name, the capabilities yep. embedded in the brand name. But that's kind of abstract. Like without people in the organization, like the organization's not going to be able to do anything. This is getting deep and I like this. Yeah. Um, can organizations be successful by going down the pathway of the playing nice? We need to play nice. Playing nice is the way that we're going to win in the end. Can they be as successful as they might be if they go that way? Yeah, that that is an excellent question, Mark. This is super deep. Like I could see playing nice could actually be a valuable point of difference for an organization because, you know, we generally have a cynical view of corporate behavior and how cutthroat it is. But uh, I mean, my day job is to be a writer. So I'm like using my imagination. I, I can't actually imagine an organization that sets itself apart through playing nice. But then the question is, whatever that product or service that the organization is delivering, like playing nice would have to be an intrinsic part of that because, you know, if you have a company that's, you know, a bank or something, to message the bank's behaviour in marketing that we play nice, I, I don't know, like I just don't think people would ever believe that. So it would have to be a certain type of organisation where playing nice would be an intrinsic part of its identity. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what that organisation is, but... You raise a good point. I think my sense here is that we need to embrace the diversity of what humans bring at a unique level and some may bring that ability to bring people together. Yes. And then there might be others who are, I guess, more of the lone wolves who will create an environment where there's a level of, I like the sand in the gears, the friction. I remember having a team where, you know, I would speak to my people about their relevance and contribution and talk at a human level and say to people like, like Trevor in my team, Trevor, your contribution is that you are a professional agitator. <laughs> and he'd be like, oh, what's that mean? I say, well, you're the one in the room when we're all, I'm going to say, playing nice and nodding our heads and agreeing, even though inside we're not doing that, we're... We're shaking our heads. You are the one who steps into the space and goes, what's going on here? It's almost like, let's case in point this right now. So you agitate us, you say things that, that maybe sting us in the moment, but it helps us to make the progress we need to make. Whereas someone else in the group who is more of the collegiate hugger who brings us together when we're starting to get too scratchy and we've got too much sand in the gears. And this is what I want people to pick up out of this episode is as a manager of a team, and this is where discomfort starts to come into it, your ability to absorb discomfort by embracing the uniqueness of the people and, and not doing what a lot of managers do is we want everyone to be the same or we want you to follow these values and, and, and then it will score you a certain rating. Let's step into this piece now about stepping into discomfort because I know you've got some thoughts on this. If managers are going to become better at sitting with discomfort and, and embracing the uniqueness of everything from the lone wolf to the really compliant player, because all, they'll all be there in the workplace, what would be three tips you would give them that would help them to become more effective in that space? Yeah, so number one tip for a manager to step into their discomfort would be for them to maintain a sense of curiosity. So 
the reason why I think curiosity is important is I actually think it's more potent than like courage or motivation because when we feel discomfort, we feel like pain is going to come our way or something bad's going to happen. And this sort of attitude of like manning up and just facing it, I don't know if it's that effective, but if you then put curiosity there and go, oh, this is really bad, this situation isn't great, but I'm curious as to how I'm going to get through it and will I be better at the end of it or what will we have learned? So curiosity, I think, is the first thing. Maintain that. Love it. Secondly is if you're in that situation of discomfort, chances are emotions are going to be running high, people are going to be upset, they're going to be stressed. So the second thing is always have something helpful to share with others because not only will that help yourself, but people who are struggling with an uncomfortable situation, they'll have something to latch on to. So you're not taking the problem away, but you're giving them like a, a lifeline yep. or something. And then third this like seems obvious, but it has to be said is be honest. So if you're in an uncomfortable situation, someone's upset at you, you're upset at someone else, you've just got to be open and honest, stick with the facts, never bullshit anyone. Even if someone's pissed off at you, they'll appreciate it. And then after the situation's resolved itself or whatever happens, you'll still be able to look at yourself in the mirror because, you know, you were authentic. Yeah. I love it. Um, just let's play around with the first one for a minute. Curiosity. Because curiosity also takes time and effort. Why is it, do you think, that we're not as curious as we should be? In And I'm not saying just work, but in everything. And, and look, some people are very curious. I get a sense with you, you are a curious soul. But why is it that people step away from the curiosity and wanting to know more? Fear of failure is a pretty strong motivation to not be curious because, you know, we're not always going to succeed. So you can have curiosity about something, but whatever it is, whatever you're setting out to do, it might all fall apart. Like you might try a new thing because of curiosity, but, you know, it may not work. And yep. none of us like to fail. It's funny, we've enshrined failure. Like we see all these little sayings, particularly on social media, like, you know, fail fast, don't be afraid to fail. But, you know, we're all afraid to fail. I don't like failing. I'll be honest. Like I fail a lot, but I don't go, oh, that was wonderful, I failed. <laughs> well, we got conditioned at uh, a thing called school about <laughs> failing and what failing meant to us. And it was usually a... Uh, a swift kick in the ass, or something like that, or a uh, Mark did well but could do better on the report card. And, and that, I think, I do like the idea of embracing failure, but when you fail, well, you missed out. You weren't good enough. Exactly. You, and it's like, shit, okay, that starts to bring back some thoughts. The other one that plays on my mind, Tim, just quickly for you to consider is the, re the relationship between curiosity and our desire to be right, and what I call the curse of rightness. Like, I think the more curious I become, the more I put myself at risk of being wrong. Yeah, that is an excellent point. And because of the way we communicate today, you know, everything's online. Even our face-to-face -face meetings before the COVID situation, 
now they've all moved online. And so no one wants to appear foolish. Or if, you know, you get something really wrong, the last thing you want is someone like sharing it in some electronic forum like Slack or LinkedIn or whatever. It's (laughs) like, oh, it's there forever. I don't know why this is, but there's almost it's a fetish, the appearance to be right all the time. Mm. And so this has a corrosive effect on everything, even politics. And, you know, there's a lot of wrong decisions in politics, but there's degrees of wrongness, I suppose. Like if it's a simple mistake, I don't think someone should like lose their livelihood or reputation over a simple human mistake. Mm. Perhaps like buying some watches for some people. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, wow, what a story that one is. <laughs> well, it's just, yeah, it's playing out very interestingly at the moment that I used to work for this. See, I, I, I don't read every single piece of news because, you know, there's only so many hours in the day, but just briefly skimming that story that you're referencing without me diving deep into it, I remember when it first appeared, I just remember feeling this seemed a little unfair. Mm the way this person's being treated. And I I didn't go into every single bullet point on it, but that's another thing. Like the lone wolf is sort of in touch with their feelings. They haven't allowed their identity to be completely obliterated by like the electronic chatter and the need to be right or or to say the right things all the time. I think it's got some ways to play out, but it's an interesting case study in the moment around what's right and what's wrong and who interprets what. And then it comes down to the authority in the room at the particular point in time right? making a call and saying something that maybe that person will regret now. That's like yes, they need to go. Well, that was, a, that was grandstanding at its finest and without understanding the details behind it of what maybe the lone wolf was doing. And that's not a lone wolf behaviour, by the way, because most organisations reward people. That's right. So that sort of activity. So, yeah, that's going to play out quite interestingly. Um, mate, thanks for sharing those three things. Now, um, I don't know why I've got this gut feel that me and you might clash a bit on this next one I'm about to raise. But <laughs> Okay. I'm holding on to the edge of my chair. No, you'll be fine, mate. I'm the <laughs> one that's worried, not you. You shouldn't be. Simplicity and complexity. I'm a very simple human being with a simple view that we can at times, I don't know, maybe to make us look smarter or to be in the room or to be at the boardroom table, we'd like to try and make the simple complex. Notwithstanding, there are things that are quite complex and human beings are part of that. But Mm. if you do have it, well, you will have a view on this. Do you think that human beings do try and make the simple at times complex? And if you think that, why why do you think they might do that? Yeah, well, for speaking from my experience, people in a communications or marketing role tend towards making simple things complex and to be completely brutal about it they do that to obscure what they're really trying to say now they may not consciously be trying to obscure it but it's actually coming from a place of insecurity because what they're trying to communicate they're not a hundred percent sold on so they're trying to make it sound more grandiose and important than it really is by dressing it up in jargon or whatever, because it makes them sound smarter, which is, you know, one benefit, but it's also obscuring the fact that they don't really believe what they're saying. (laughs) (laughs) 
I thought what you're supposed to believe your own bullshit was something I was once told. <laughs> so that's interesting. They're dressing stuff up. They look smarter. I heard that one a lot in 60-odd episodes. It makes me look smarter, allows me to sit at the table, use the right words, the window dressing as I sometimes get it. Cool, but yeah, that belief piece I hadn't heard before. So why were we going to clash on that one? I don't know. I just had a sense of, you know, in my my gut feel was that you would be more into, no, 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 this, it's complex. Things are complex and there's a lot of complexity and I think you're just being too bloody simple. But that was a story for some reason that I have created about a few engagements with you, which now appears to be totally... I was wrong and I don't like being wrong. Well, I need to work on my image and the way that I'm presenting myself to people because <laughs> I would hate to think that I was one of those people that uses a lot of meaningless words to describe something. I, you know what? I did, I'm not putting you in that category, so I'm backpedalling at a million miles an hour now. But what I was thinking is one of the things that I've been thinking about, like how much more intelligent you are than me, I'm, and I'm a simple bogan. <laughs> Did you know I was born in the western suburbs in New South Wales before moving to Adelaide? So I was born in Fairfield Hospital. The hospital I was born in is no longer there. I think it was like obliterated to make way for a sizzler or something. Now sizzler don't even exist, so that's part of my history gone. But like, yeah, embrace the bogan. Where did you live in Adelaide? Uh, a few different places. Yep. Uh, first suburb was a place called Athelston, yep. which um, was notable for all the Italian market gardeners there. And then my family moved into the Adelaide Hills, which nice. was a lot more upmarket than Athelston. Where, whereabouts in the, in the hills were you? A couple of places. First Bridgewater yep. and then uh, Allgate. Nice, beautiful parts of the world. I had four years in Adelaide and um, oh, really? we used to do a bit of... Uh, Weekend tripping up into the hills, mate, because it was just spectacular, spectacular part of the world. I, I was living in, um, we were sort of in closer in sort of, my cousin was playing footy at Sturt at the time. So we were in Unley and sort of in around that area renting and then end up buying a place in just out to the north at Vale Park, just sort of ah. the northeast there. But uh, lovely, lovely part of the world. Hey, um, maybe just from a lone wolf that you are, that you've described yourself as, but a good lone wolf, not one of those bad lone wolves. For other lone wolves that are listening now and they're really starting to relate to you, what would be one piece of advice you would give to the lone wolf? Something that might have been useful for you to know maybe when you were a younger lone wolf than what you are today. Yeah, so this advice is coming from a place of kindness and empathy. So if you are a lone wolf, don't get too high on your supply. What I mean by that is don't elevate yourself above others because the chances are there are people in your organisation who are smart, who are deep, complex thinkers, but for whatever reason, they're not achieving success. It's because of the structure of the organisation. It's not a personal fault of theirs or a personality defect. They just haven't recognised the fact that there's a structure in the organisation that is actually preventing things from happening and the lone wolf is actually circumventing it. So don't think you're better than someone because you're alone of your lone wolf tendencies. It's just because you've identified the, the framework of the game 
yeah, like it before others. Yeah, and that's that's I think that's really useful for people to understand. And I like that piece around the I guess the constraints that come from the organisational structure, and and people will work that out over time, um, and then maybe build the curiosity and at times the courage to be able to step into their lone wolfishness. Hey, I know you um, you do a whole lot of other things as well. You've got a – I've read some of your blogs, which are incredible. I love the one about the story of the big walk that you went on. And I know you do some podcasting as well. So for people who want to find out more about and, and read some of your great content, where can they find that? Yeah, so the best place, Mark, is to go to my website, which is timhoran.com, T-I-M-H-O-R-A-N.com. I put everything on there. Magnificent. Hey, mate, thank you for this. Uh, I did say to you beforehand that we could go anywhere, and I think we did, but we went to some really good places here. I'm so pleased to have finally got you on here and, and to share some of your wisdom. So, Tim, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Mark. I loved it. That was incredible just to... I guess go where it went. And um, one of what I'm trying to create with this podcast is that it doesn't appear to be overly scripted. We will take the conversation where the conversation wants to go. And uh, maybe that's how we should be a little bit more like in the workplace is allowing things to go where they need to and not just ending up with agenda after agenda and whips and all sorts of things just to keep us on track. So a great conversation with Tim. I, I particularly liked his conversation around collaboration and compliance and really are we using the word collaboration when we are really meaning something else and it's to get you to collaborate is to get you to comply. His ideas around donning the fleece and putting on the the sheep's clothing as the lone wolf just to get through and why that's important, why at times we need to understand that if we push too hard at the edges of authority, that we will become ineffective and ultimately be taken out. So I really enjoyed when he talked about that. The idea of looking smarter and dressing stuff up in this conflict between keeping things simple when we appear to get rewarded for the more complex we can make things be. And, you know, he shared some examples today of how that works in the space that he, he works in. He shares early on around his upbringing and how that's impacted upon him and I guess got him to understand that there is a place for the lone wolf and even at times when that lone wolfish behaviour may not be the best, that if you can build some awareness around that and understanding that don't get high on your supply, as he called it, and think you're better than others, just being aware enough that it takes all sorts of people to create success whether it be in organisations, families, communities, whatever it might be. I was fascinated. We could have talked for a whole lot longer. His tips on stepping into discomfort, particularly curiosity, was the one that stood out for me, um, should give you some food for thought when you're sort of sitting there and thinking, should I be curious? Should I spend more time being curious or should I just be right? Because as I sort of said, I think there's some sort of relationship between the more curious we come, the more chances we are to become wrong. So I wonder how that sits with you. Hey there, if you like this episode, why not rate it five stars and please write a review and uh, share it with your friends. But until next time, keep it simple, keep it practical and keep it human. Bye for now. <laughs>